Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be learning all about the steel guitar and hearing from some amazing pioneers of the instrument. So stick around for Pioneers of the Steel Guitar. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org slash library. Welcome back, guys. Uh, this is going to be a fantastic episode uh, covering the pioneers of the steel guitar. Uh, and it's such a, I mean, there's so much history with the steel guitar. And uh, so we had to do this in in sections, of course, because we can't fit it all in there or else this would have been <laughs> like a five-hour podcast. And I don't think anybody wants to listen to us for five hours. Uh, so for this first one, we're going to just cover the pioneers and kind of the beginning origin of the steel guitar. So in the part one of this little mini series that we're doing about pioneers of the steel or the steel guitar, starting with the pioneers, we're going to be hearing from today, Herb Remington, DeWitt Scott, AKA Scotty Scott, Alvino Ray, Buddy Emmons, Speedy West, Bud Isaacs, Buddy Merrill, and Gary Morse should be a great episode packed with amazing steel guitarists. And you know what, Mike, when you list those names, I'm just like so in awe of the fact that over the years we've been able to interview these guys because you just listed the who's who of this instrument. I mean, how <laughs> awesome it's been that this program goes back far enough that we were able to get Alvino Ray. I mean, he mm -hmm. really was the pioneer of putting this instrument on popular recordings. So it's so fantastic. I'm really excited and maybe as excited as uh, Ashley, I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> starting off with a guy that it was such a true privilege and honor to interview. Uh, growing up and listening to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, I thought, wow, I mean, that is history. Those guys were recording music that has been influential. Um, I would even say contemporary country music today. They, what they did was really, truly uh, unique and interesting. And um, so that Western swing style uh, is very evident in a lot of different forms of music. So um, being able to interview one of those guys and turns out he was the last survivor of that band it was very unique opportunity for us. And then on top of that, to find out, hey, this guy actually makes steel guitars. He had a company <laughs> called Remington Steel um, and uh, produced these instruments over the years. So that's a great story. Uh, this is really his take on the, the instrument that we'll be talking about each of these guys uh, is more of the Hawaiian style uh, because that was sort of the pioneer of, um, of the instrument and how it really got uh, started in recordings of popular music. And so that swing kind of combination of jazz is really what he introduced. And a great example of his style um, is a recording that he did in 1950 called Boot Heel Drag. So think of that or get a chance to play that. Uh, then you'll understand the style of Herb Remington, who's going to tell us his story about the uh, pedal guitar. Here is Herb Remington. There's two different kinds of steel guitars, the pedal steel and a non-pedal. The pedal steel does the work for you. You push a pedal down and raises the string or flats it. 
You can make your own tuning and make your your own chord that you want. It's best for you. They all do a different deal. And you can put one, two, three, all, up to eight pedals doing eight different things. And a lot of those players can't play without them. <laughs> I learned how to play without the pedals or knee levers. And that's what we're back building again because there's been a, 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 less, a, a less of amount of interest in pedal steels. In other words, the recording industry really sets the standard for what's being purchased and the interest in, in steel guitars are. If they don't use steel guitars, nobody buys them. If they use somebody that plays a steel guitar all the way, though, everybody wants one. You know? <laughs> so that's the way it goes. Put well, your so money in the clothes. Tell me a little bit about the, the knee pedal part, because that's well, the, interesting the, to the me. The knee levers uh, hang down. They do the same thing the pedals do, either raise or lower. So you're, you're, you're doing this, that, and this, and this, and you got to be a monkey to, you know, or an octopus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So you prefer it the way you're building them now? Well, it's just, it's two separate instruments. Hmm. I have to be uh, adept to a degree with each one of them. I started out playing no, with no pedals, and I'm still at, still doing it. But I started building pedal steels, and they, I built a good guitar. But by, <clears throat> I got out kind of at the tail end of the, of the interest, and uh, it started going downhill in sales. Well, I can't have that. I, I've got to keep the sales up somehow. So we dropped the pedal steels and went non-pedal. And sure enough, there's a lot of interest for non-pedal steel. Gene Cronover, I don't think you know the name, joined Bob Wills after I left. And uh, Gene was a fine steel guitar player. He never got to really show out and be what he really could be because Bob had him, delay, had him playing the same tuning, the same licks and everything, the, those before Gene uh, played. And Bob said, I want you to play Boot Heel Drag, he used the same tuning that Herb used, and that sort of thing. So he was never recognized, uh, and yet he was one of the most versatile steel guitar players Bob ever had. <laughs> this, is a, this is a story that Bob's gone, of course, and Gene Cronover's long gone, and they would laugh if I told the story about Leo Fender, who gave instruments to the, to the bands when I came into California. We all got new amplifiers and new guitars and stuff. Leo would furnish it. And we'd take them out on tour and the uh, musicians would see them, like them, and order them. Well, like uh, my first pedal, my first non-pedal steel I took on the road. Came back from the tour after three months and Leo's desk was loaded with orders. They saw Herb Steel, they want one. And that's just the way they used to be. And anyway, uh, Bob played out in the, uh, one of the piers out there. We had a big dance, and Leo Fender attended it. And he brought along uh, a pedal steel. Leo first started building pedal steel. He's just trying to get in that business. And gave it to, G to Gene Cronover. Well, that's real nice, and darn things are expensive, you know. And he, and he presented it to Gene. Well, a year went by, and we came, we took him on tour, came back again, and Leo came back out to dance and was talking to Bob during intermission. He said, How's Steen like, how's uh, Gene like his pedal steel, Bob? And Bob said, I said, Does he play? He said, Does he play? Does he play it a lot? Bob was kind of hesitating. He said, Well, not enough to get him fired. 
<laughs> See, Bob didn't like that sound. He didn't like that Nashville crying sound. Mm. He wanted somebody to play chords like Alvino Ray or somebody. Curly Shocker, Buddy Evans. Uh, but I always thought that was funny. That, Bob's expressions were that way. He didn't come out and say, well, he plays terrible, it sounds awful, and I don't want it. He didn't, didn't, didn't do that. He, he just don't, he doesn't play it enough to get him fired. <laughs> so once again, that was Herb Remington talking about the pedal steel and steel guitar, what this podcast is all about. Um, next up, we're going to be hearing another an amazing name, DeWitt Scott, also known as Scotty Scott. And I think he wins the award of best name in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Speedy West, though. Come on. That's yeah, true. There's, there's other ones coming ones. up. That's there's very true. Ones. You know, Scotty was a very interesting character. He started a music store in St. Louis, I think about 1963, um, to not only sell instruments, but also repair the steel pedals that his friends were playing on stages all over the place. It was called Scotty's Music Store. Uh, and then he also started uh, Midland Records, I think in about 1973. And that was also about the same time he started the... Um, a, a conference, the Steel Show, that basically became uh, the Steel Guitar Hall of Fame, um, and for which he would induct people. They would have a conference every year, mostly in St. Louis. Um, fantastic way of getting that part of uh, the industry and those players together and to celebrate each other and also to talk about the gear and how to make adjustments and uh, changes and modifications to the instruments. So uh, it was a really wonderful thing that they did. Um, in addition to all of that, he also wrote this these anthologies of the guitar, the steel pedal guitar and the steel guitar uh, for... Um, Mel Bay and published a whole series of stuff. And so anybody who plays either of those instruments um, will probably have him to thank for learning about the chord structures and how to get different things to do different things, you know, different sounds and so on. Uh, really unique books um, and a really great guy. So uh, what a great opportunity it was for us to talk to him. And just as a, a fun little side note, um, at the one of the couple of conventions of the steel show that I got to go to, they surprised him. All the people got together and inducted him into his own hall of fame, which was really cool. <laughs> I mean, he's a pioneer. He's I, these first two uh, people that we're listening to Herb and Scotty both are, I mean, you might not necessarily know them for like, playing per se and, and, and being front and center on the stage, but they're so crucial to, to what the pedal steel is, uh, which is why we kind of put them in the beginning of this podcast to kind of give a good understanding of, of what this instrument is and what the origin of it is, which is very fascinating to me. I have to say, I never realized that it started in Hawaiian music per se. I wouldn't have gone from, wouldn't assume country music was inspired by Hawaiian music, but sure. <laughs> but it makes perfect sense when you hear these stories. So, um, so going with that, we're going to hear from Scotty now talking a little bit just about his interpretation of what the uh, pedal steel is and a little bit about uh, Alvino Ray. So here is Scotty Scott. Could you tell me, um, describe the difference between the pedal, the lap, the, you know, the, all yes. the various. Yeah, the, uh, okay, the pedal steel, 
is um, that's where we need to steal. I can set it on my lap. The uh, um, in order to make a change, you either slanted the bar one way or the other, or moved up or down with the bar to get certain sounds. Okay, now then, most to relate this related to a piano, because pr probably. 75% of the people understand a piano keyboard. If you're playing a, a C chord with the E on the bottom, then a G, then a, the root or C on top, if you want to go to an F chord on the pedals, on the lap steel, you'd have to move from the C chord position to the F position to get that combination. Okay, now you want to, you want to play a D7, a D7, or a, a C, C, F, and G7 chord. Okay, you move up two more frets to get your G chord. And if you tune to a E seventh, then the, you got the seventh by adding another note. Now here's the difference. A pedal steel can be playing those three strings, push two pedals down or even one if you want to, and it changes that chord to FAC without moving the bar. To get the D seven, let one of the pedals up, push your knee, and you've got the D seven without ever moving the bar. And that's just the very basic explanation. You can get into uh, major sevenths, minor seventh, diminished chords, augmented, and never move the bar. Hmm. But, you know, that's all well and good. That sounds good. You can play complete melodies without ever moving the bar. But when you do that, I think you're eliminating the real purpose of a steel guitar, and that's you're eliminating the slides. So there's the time to do it, and there's the time to slide. That's as your answer. That's beautiful. Who do you who do you credit uh, um, for creating the the uh, pedal steel? Is I already it? mentioned that, Bud Isaacs. Uh, yeah. Well, he popularized. He popularized, created it. Uh, the the my first recollection of the Fender four hundred, which is single neck with four pedals, Fender one thousand. With two double necks, there are only eight strings per neck. With you know double neck, two necks. Uh, when Fender put it out, the uh, they put a chord chart with it, and that tells you how to tune it. Just prior to that, the Bixby steel guitar was putting out pedals, uh, pedal steel, and I would say uh, Buddy Emmons and Jimmy Day. Were probably the two most influential players to decide on which tuning, the E ninth or the or the C six, when they first started with an E. Then these two guys were buddies. Said well, we need another string. Uh, uh, even Ralph Mooney, playing you know with oh, yeah. the McCoins back in them days, he put an extra string up there, G sharp. And uh, Buddy said, well, there's got to be more than that. So Buddy was experimenting around with the Showbud Guitar Company, put two high strings on the bottom to see if it worked before they could retool the guitar. He just, they were what you call permanent. You couldn't change it. You couldn't go down. You had to play it like it came out of the factory. And uh, that, he then it came out to be, they, Showbud called it United Chromatic. I guess chromatic means with the aid of the pedals, you could go up the scale chromatically. But now we just call it E-9th tuning. 
and wh what was Jimmy's uh, uh, contribution? You know, him and, and him and Buddy were great friends, and they they would uh, jam together in, in a motel room for a couple of days and nights, swapping licks and everything. And uh, Jimmy tuned, uh, put hooked his pedals up, what we call a day setup, which would rock from um, uh, right to left. And not Buddy, not knowing that, he hooked his up, what we call the Hemming setup. You rock your pedals from left to right. So that, that has an impact when a guy orders a guitar. What do you want the day set up? You want the M and set up. Well, what's the difference, you know? <laughs> so we're stuck with that. But those two players, I would say, were the most influential in standardizing the tuning. Hmm. Uh, Herb Remington told me once that he, he also put a couple of little strings on the bottom of the, of the guitar. Say you had a 10-string guitar, they would they'd put two little bitty strings on the ninth and 10th. I don't know to what effect that had on the industry. I, I didn't. Um, I never did pursue that. Hmm. What contributions would you attribute to Alvino Ray? Alvino was um, uh, active in the pop field, and he goes back thirties and forties, I presume. And the multi-chord, the multi-chord, you know, had their steels out in the thirties. And not to a great extent, they improved him more in the 40s. But, uh, and I, I, he used the, uh, I'm sure he used the pedal just to vary the tuning. So, and he was with orchestra. In fact, he had his own orchestra at one time. And uh, he influenced, uh, I hesitate, the more educated people, but I can't think of no other way to do it than the, than the country people that didn't understand music, and Alvino Ray did, you know. And he could he could play with them orchestras and do the voicing that would complement the orchestra. So that's his contribution to it. He, he put out many albums and everything. He didn't do a whole lot of playing solo-wise. You know, his, uh, his solo sometimes was um, backing up the, the uh, orchestra. Hmm. And then he'd take a ride here and there. But uh, he was a wonderful person. He really was. He was one of the first three inducted to the Steel Guitar Hall of Fame. Uh, Jerry Bird and uh, and uh, and Leon McCullough were the other two. So those three were uh, probably contributed most, and that's why they're in the Hall of Fame. You know, uh, being a good player don't put you in the Hall of Fame. There's too many good players, too many excellent, too many pros. So the Hall of Fame has to be very selective and to keep me from being a popularity contest. Mm. Yeah, so Alvino, man, but whenever these commercial uh, steel guitars came out, like uh, Sierra, boy, Alvino got one. <laughs> and it, it solved a lot of his problems, you know. <laughs> and it's, that, that, was, that was great, he was a great person. A Mormon, by the way. And, yeah. Yeah. Mary the King sister. Yeah, Louise, uh, Louise yeah. he married uh, uh, Louise and uh, are we head, head, or should we be talking about the Hall of Fame, or sure. is that coming up? Okay, well, no, okay, it's not Hall of Fame, it's the Steel Guitar Convention. Alvino used what he called a talk box. Talk, T-A-L-K, talk box. It's a square box that had a tube coming out, he'd put it in his mouth, and he wouldn't say the words. He'd just form them in his throat. And that that's difficult to do. 
uh, Buddy Emmons did it uh, with Ray Price, and uh, Pete Drake did it, you know, in his recordings. But at the Steel Guitar Convention, uh, Louise was behind stage. Alvino was out playing with our staff band, and he did that talk box. But you could see nothing coming out of his mouth or anything. His wife had the box, and she was forward back there, but they had it down so precision that when he needed that talk box, like, hello, he'd, he'd say hello with the guitar, but it would be coming through like, hello. And that mystified the people. They just had no idea how Vino was doing. A lot of them still don't even know how he did it today because I don't think I let the secret out. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah. So that was uh, Scotty Scott or DeWitt Scott, whichever you prefer <laughs> calling him. I'll just call him Scotty, make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he preferred, um, I think. Yeah. <laughs> just pick one, Scotty. Uh, and he was just talking about uh, Alvino Ray, who we also got to interview. Well, I didn't get to interview him. Dan got to interview him. <laughs> and we're actually going to hear from him next. I think this is so fantastic that um, a bunch of these uh, pioneers referenced one another during their interviews. And you can really tell just what a tight-knit group they were and how... Uh, inspirational and pivotal they were to one another in there. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, yeah. you know, Scotty gets a lot of credit for that. As we mentioned earlier, he was the one who got, had those conferences. And I think that really probably more so than most people would think really brought those guys together because I mean, how often do you go to a gig and there's another steel pedal guitar player on the same <laughs> band? Never. So um, <laughs> this is their one and only chance really in many cases to know each other. So uh, I totally agree that they, they complement each other. They respect each other. They learn from each other. And there's mm -hmm. a lineage of, yeah. okay, this guy did that. And then this next guy took this at a different level in a different genre. He took it from jazz into country music or whatever. And I think that that, that's a very compelling story and uh, one I hope uh, continues to unfold as we introduce more of these amazing pioneers. Definitely. And I mean, what we're talking about here, too, is like the definition of the oral history program and why this podcast is so cool is because we're able to take all these stories from different parts of the industry, even if they're both playing the same instrument, they're both pioneering the same instrument. Um, just to hear one story right into the next, it's like doesn't get better than that. <laughs> and, and I think the personalities of people who you've heard a lot, you've heard these mm -hmm. songs. I mean, if you've heard the soundtrack of Blue Hawaii by Elvis, you've heard Elvino Ray. And um, any of the big band songs that were big hits for him, uh, you know, he, his band was really interesting in the, in the 30s and 40s. He did a lot of novelty songs and he would mimic the human voice with his steel guitar. And that sold a lot of records. It was fun. It was interesting. It was different. And people couldn't tell what that sound was. Is that a voice? Doesn't quite sound like a voice, you know, that kind of thing. And so that was part of the fun of it all before MTV. And you could see, oh, okay, that was an instrument. Um, so he really took advantage of all of that and had a good time. And I think that that, you know, the fun humor part of the pedal guitar um, or the steel guitar and the pedal, he did both, um, was really kind of an important part, I think an important foundation that a lot of other people you know, don't take us too seriously, but this is an instrument and you do need to know how to learn, you know, you have to learn how to play it. There's some tricks to it. So yeah, 
and I think they got a lot of respect from other musicians that way too, because mm-hmm. um, that sound was so unique and so interesting that the, they would often have studio musicians, some of which we're going to be hearing from today would just come in and play Well, let's just play a little bit of that. You know, it's maybe not the lead instrument of the in, of the song, but it's a very important element of it, a spice, if you will. Um, <laughs> And so here's my favorite Alvino Ray story. So I went to his house for his interview up in Sandy, Utah, which is really close to Salt Lake City. A really nice guy. Had a little music room off the side of his guitar. I mean, his garage with guitars hanging up and and stuff all around. And we're talking about uh, Andre Segovia because he was classically trained and really respected the classical guitar. But, you know, obviously had very, very successful pop records as well, uh, playing other instruments. And this is about the time that the NAM Museum in Carlsbad was starting, uh, the Museum of Making Music. And I told him, I says, you know, we don't have a, a pedal or a, a steel pedal uh, guitar in our collection. And one of these days we got to get one. And he looked around and he pointed to the show bud with his name, uh, Alvino Ray and Abalone, or at least it looks like Abalone. Um, <laughs> and he says, take that one. <laughs> and guess what? I just went down to the museum. They are, uh, they've renovated the museum for a reopening, uh, coming up in June, 2021. And, um, his steel pedal guitar is included in the display and I'm so very happy about that. So awesome. um, Yeah, that is great. I love that. He just pointed at one randomly. I I just (laughs) imagined like a whole room of them and he's just like, "Eh, that one. how many times could he do that? If people came in and asked him for a steel pedal guitar, (laughs) he had a lot of stuff, but not that many. So I would just want a generous guy. That was really neat. Now imagine me not knowing at all exactly how to get that back on my flight oh. that was really that's a heavy instrument wow. to lug around i would be terrified <laughs> to try to have to like take break that down somehow yeah oh, gosh. can't can't carry that on that won't no. fit in overhead bins <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay, so we're one of the things we're trying to do is for those of you who take notes and want to go back and listen to some music, uh, the recommended recording for Alvino Ray is Gotta Be Bumble Boogie, which is the Bumblebee, Flight of the Bumblebee set to the steel pedal guitar and really fast, really, really fun. <laughs> it's a fun, fun recording. So let's get back to our uh, interviews. And here's Alvino Ray from 2001 talking about his career and some of his influences. And of course, Bumble Boogie. I went to school in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, I became fascinated with the uh, banjo. So I played a lot of banjo in the bands in the 20s. And then the guitar came along, and I heard Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti, and I wanted to copy their, their playing. So I took wonderful lessons on the guitar, both in Cleveland and in New York probably the greatest teachers and uh, that's where I learned everything and you played the banjo early on too oh yeah for years that was my that was my original instrument banjo I still play it quite a bit tell me about Eddie Lang what was it about his playing that was influential for you well he was the first one to um, play guitar and sort of make it jazz instrument out of it in a dance orchestra and then feature him playing some one single notes things 
And when I went to New York, he was the first one I looked up. He had two guitars there. He was going to send one back to Gibson, and I said, no, don't send it back. I'll take it. And that's how I got started. Then I had some wonderful teachers all through the East and in Europe and all over. I studied guitar my whole life and uh, made a fair living at it. So you had actually heard of Eddie Lang before you met him? Well, I, I had his records. Yeah. So what was it like meeting him after hearing him? Well, it was quite a thrill, you know, but he was very cordial. And I, I, I knew him up till the time he died. When he came to California, I, I spent time with him. And then he was going to do a picture with Crosby, and then he, his tonsils they took out, and that killed him. Is that right? Very sad, yeah. Hmm. And Joe Venuti kept on going, as you know. And uh, I worked with him in two or three pictures, but never played the duet with him. No, that was uh, it was a, a lot of fun. Besides, it was a, uh, it was a business at, uh, at that point. Who were some of your other influences or other people that you admired in those early days? Well, uh, the bands we 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 admired some of the big orchestras and. When we got started, we heard Benny Goodman and uh, and uh, a couple of bands like that, and um, and then we we grew up along with Glenn Miller and uh, Tommy Dorsey and uh, and those. That's about all. Mm. We sort of would compete with them, except we would do more novelties than they would. <laughs> we had a better stage band, and. Uh, but musically, we we had a pretty good band, I thought. Yeah, you had some amazing players. Oh yeah. Throughout your your career as a band leader. And uh, don't leave the arrangers out. They were pretty great. So that's what was fun when we'd get a good arrangement. You know, the whole band would love to hear a new arrangement every once in a while. But that's that's just about covered in. Name some of your arrangers. Well, uh, as I say, Frank Duvall was one in the beginning. It was for many years, and then we had uh, Billy May and um, uh, Dean Kincaid and uh, uh, people like that that were quite uh, quite good. And as the years went on, we had uh, equally as good a play arrangers, but they didn't became as didn't become as famous as uh, a couple like Billy May. We got him. Um, started arranging from Glenn Miller. He wasn't arranging, and then I we gave him a job to come and join us and write our book. So then he came to California and left Glenn Miller. So um, that's some of the highlights of our of our band. Interesting. I'm wondering if you could you could help us understand. Um, the role of the guitar during the big band era. We often at the museum talk about Freddie Green over at the Count Basie Orchestra and how he played five chords and was basically a rhythm instrument. That's right. And he didn't actually want to take a solo because that was That's his... That's right. That was his. Tell us a little bit about that role. Well, uh, the guitar became a wonderful rhythm instrument, not a solo instrument in the bands. Um, they, they weren't. Uh, we really started the 
guitar as a solo instrument in the band. And the other bands all played rhythm with it, you know. And um, it never became a solo instrument in the big bands, if you know. Uh, a few exceptions with, uh, with Benny Goodman and his uh, young man that was so wonderful, the, the black boy that was changed the whole uh, outlook on a lot of jazz, you know. Charlie Christensen. But, uh, Charlie Christensen, yes. But um, there wasn't any other bands that featured uh, guitar, except ours, to my knowledge. And, uh, of course, uh, Django Reinhardt, but he was a soloist, more or less, with a little group, you know. And there were a lot of little groups with wonderful guitar players, in it, as you know, trios. But big band, no, I, I can't say that. <laughs> well, you were were you playing solo guitar um, in the Horace Heights band, or you? Were, oh yes, you I were, did a, okay. a solo every week practically. Did you? And uh, on his radio programs, I didn't work television with him till years later. I did a, a guest shot, but he always had me do a solo, and that was sort of a identification in his band was the guitar. That was the start of it, you know. That's true. And then when we formed our band, we decided to improve on it musically, you know. And uh, that wasn't easy, but we did that. <laughs> I'm going to really press your memory. I hope you don't mind. And with uh, Horace Height, were there any particular songs that you remember doing solos on? Oh, gee, I can't say. I, I know Tiger Rag was the most popular one. And uh, I, I can't think offhand. We did so many things. I bet. Uh, Hawaiian numbers. Uh, uh, when the Hawaiian uh, Little Grass Yak came in, I introduced that. And a few things like that were... I, I, I can't think that's far back. Oh, that's, those are great <laughs> answers. The, the other thing that's very unique about your own personal style, uh, um, I know you're a very modest guy, but I'd like to ask you a little bit about your own personal style. Some people always thought that, or thought that it was speed that was kind of the main component of your of your own personal style. What what do you think? Well, what do you call it? Speed. You know, playing really fast. Oh yeah. Well, I, I like that. Fascinated me too. The fast things, but uh, like I did Bumble Boogie and some of the uh, things like that. And uh, my fingers, I, I had a lot of good instruction on how to play. And I was fascinated, but that isn't, uh, good music isn't necessarily speed, you know, really isn't. Good but, talent uh, is speed, <laughs> though. How, I don't know how you get your fingers to work so quick. Well, I don't either. <laughs> That's all right. Bumble Boogie is a is a particularly fast one. Yeah. Well, for years I played the Flight of the Bumblebee on the classic guitar, and, and uh, so we added Dean Kin Kincaid made a wonderful arrangement of that before he went in this. He was drafted, and that's when Billy May took his place. He suggested he when he left for the Navy, he says there's a fellow that I think you should have, and he's playing trumpet with. Glenn Miller, but they don't use him for arrangements. <laughs> he says, he's the one for you. <laughs> and that's how we got started. Isn't that great? Tell me a little bit about um, what you consider your style. If you were to, to write your own style, what, what exactly is that? 
It's a oh, combination I, of a lot of things. I don't know. I think I was hoping the steel guitar would be a, a style uh, with the band, which would be imitating the brass and the saxes, and, and it would be another color for the band, you know. And uh, that that really was our style, but we didn't uh, emphasize it enough. But uh, using the steel was more of a style than the Spanish guitar, because the Spanish guitar was becoming uh, pretty good as a solo instrument. And I still used it, but the steel sort of took over, and uh, I don't know whether it was a good idea or not. But, but everyone sort of remembers me playing the steel with the big band. So once again, that was Elvino Ray on the Music History Project. And one thing I wanted to mention before we continue um, is that these podcast episodes are now all video. We have started doing video instead of just audio. And if you want to see that version, which includes our beautiful faces and everyone that we're talking to and hearing from today, um, you can head over to nam.org, N-A-M-M.org, slash library, slash podcast. And that'll list all of our podcast episodes, including the last one, which I believe was 98, could have been 97. I don't remember off the top of my head. And that was the first one we started with all video. Um, so be sure to check that out. So when they go to the page, our most recent one is the one listed on top, right? Correct. Yes, it will be this one. At the nice. time of <laughs> at the time of this recording, that is <laughs> <laughs> very fun. Yeah, this is great. We're having so much fun, you guys, um, talking about these uh, great people that we've been able to interview and tell a larger story. You know, having only one of them in our collection wouldn't nearly be as exciting as the depth of talking about these guys, especially since one sort of fed off the other as far as influences, especially these guys are talking about the pioneers. And I appreciate the fact that uh, Ashley, who does all the prep work for these, uh, chose to do it in an order that makes a lot of sense, which is really kind of cool. So, um, you know, to me, um, Alvino gets the credit for really launching this instrument into popular vernacular and, and our understanding that this is a real instrument and um, introducing it to so many people. The next guy, Buddy Emmons, really gets the credit for putting the emotions into his playing in a way that will tear you up. I mean, he just really had a touch like no other um, and a huge influence in certainly the country music uh, genre, but because uh, Nashville was so prominent in the recording of popular songs, particularly in his era of the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, he's on a lot of hit records as well. But it's that touch, I think, and that um, style that he introduced that was uh, intimate. You know, really, there is some softness to it. It's not this blaring strain. You know, when you think of steel, you think, you know, hard and rough. And I think he almost went out of his way to prove that it can be a very sensitive instrument as well. Um, with that being said, there's also um, some great swing, you know, some great jazz, some great feel, um, just really tasty stuff that he put together. My favorite of his, uh, since we uh, are giving some recommendations, is uh, Singing Strings of Steel. It's a great tune uh, that uh, really kind of gets you in the mood and show showcases his style. And also not easy to say five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I barely got through it once. Don't ask me to do it five times. <laughs> I won't. I'm not even going to try to say it myself because I think I'm going to mess that up. <laughs> um, and so kind of continuing into this, we're going to hear from Betty Emmons now, uh, just talking a little bit about his um, intro into the steel guitar and uh, a little bit of his career. And I will highlight just ahead of time, he, is, he will mention that his um, dad loved the steel guitar and that's why he kind of picked it up. And he is not the only one. When I was doing all of this research and listening to all these interviews, there was at least two or three of, of our other interviewees that mentioned how much one of their parents loved the sound of the steel guitar. And they kind of, they picked it up because of that or, you know, for various reasons, but it was, it kind of got pushed into it just because their parents loved that sound so much, which I thought was really interesting and, and uh, just kind of a, a uh, odd way of uh, being introduced to the steel guitar because I don't know how else he really would be <laughs> randomly. But I guess if your parents are really, you know, loving that instrument, they're going to be like, hey, here's the steel guitar. Learn how to play that. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, here is uh, Buddy Emmons talking a little bit more about his uh, beginnings and his career. I started, uh, I suppose, at about when I was 10, I, it was one of those things that you pick up in school, you find an instrument that they offer and uh, pick from one of them. I chose violin and uh, played it for about a year and, all, and suddenly my dad wanted, he saw that I was, you know, doing fairly well with it. He said, well, would you like to play a steel guitar? And I said, well, what's a steel guitar? And he said, well, that's my favorite instrument. He says, I've, I just always wanted one. My mother never, never could afford it, so uh, I'd like to buy you one if you'll play it. So I had my mind on another guitar, the other kind, because he had one around the house. But right at the last minute, I, I chose the steel because of what he said, you know, he, his favorite instrument. So. I chose it and I opened it up and I didn't even recognize it. I thought it should look like a guitar, but it was a little thing about eight, ten inches wide that sat on your lap. So it was completely foreign to me. Now, had he ever played one? I don't know if he ever played one or not. I knew uh, he wanted one and his mother, that, like you said, his mother couldn't afford it. And, but he never did tell me if he'd ever actually had his hands on one. So, so that was a great motivating factor for you. Well, he was, yes, yeah, because yeah. yeah, I knew he was very pleased. He, I mean, the more than I could play, he still loved, you know, he'd come home from uh, his job every night and we'd get a country song round up and uh, uh, he'd sing out of the book and I would back him, you know, <laughs> fills and all that. So we kind of grew up musically together. Did you take to it pretty, pretty quickly? Yes, I did. In fact, um, for some reason or other, music uh, has always come fairly natural to me. I, I never struggled with the violin, as I remember, and I did well in the music uh, classes in general music in, in junior high school, so it came fairly easy. So what, were you, what was the next step after, uh, after getting that plane with your father? Well, I, uh, as I progressed, I gradually, uh, I would go around the neighborhood area in South Bend 
looking for players that uh, worked in bars and things like that just to listen outside the door. <laughs> hang outside this door with one ear like that and every once in a while somebody would come out the back and that door would fly open I'd see this steel guitar sitting there and I'd go, oh boy, I want one of those so bad. And what it was, it was a triple neck bender which I had this little thing to sit on your lap. This, this guy was playing a three-neck guitar with legs <laughs> sitting down, so I didn't rest until I got one. So, so would you sneak in those places also? Or? No, I couldn't sneak in, but I did, uh, I did happen to end up with a band. The very place that I used to hang out, they somehow got the police to look the other way, and I, I ended up working there on weekends. So. It turned out uh, turned out well. Tell me about the three neck. When did you? That was the first time we saw it. But uh, about that same time, Albino Ray was playing. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know how many necks he had because I I only heard him on records. That was before television uh, at our house, anyway. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know how many necks he had, but I knew he had pedals. And the guitar I did, that the, uh, the three-neck vendor didn't. So I had to wait till I was about 18 before I got my uh, first pedal guitar. Well, I graduated to a four-neck vendor uh, after my three-neck. And I ended up in Detroit, Michigan, and ordered the Bigsby, uh, I guess, a year before I got to Detroit. So. I took delivery on the Bigsby pedal steel in Detroit, uh, Michigan, somewhere around 1954, the end of 1954. So the transition from that wasn't nearly as hard as I thought it would be. The, the hardest part was I had been standing up to play the four-neck fender, and I had to sit on a chair to play this guitar. So that that was as hard as anything because I was used to jumping around and dancing and. <laughs> whatever I wanted to do and uh, suddenly I was hobbled on this chair and, and nowhere to go so it was tough in that respect but uh, catching on to the pedals wasn't all that all that hard. And what about the knee? Knees came uh, probably three or four years after that because I had started uh, Showbud guitar, I helped start Showbud guitar with Shot uh, Jackson in, in Nashville, and we started at his garage. So our first guitars came without knee levers, the three pedals, but uh, the knee levers, I guess, came in around a year after we started the company. So that'd be approximately 1956. Was that met with immediate success? Yes, because at the time, pedal guitars were in demand when Bud Isaacs came out with the pedal sound on Webb Pierce's song, Slowly, uh, everybody had to have pedals. Is that the Just, song that really sort of defined it? That was it. Really? Yeah, that turned it all around. And uh, I'd go around the country. Uh, I was a traveling musician at the time, working with little Jimmy Dickens. And every place you, every place you go to a bar or wherever anybody was playing, somebody had tried to rig their <coughs> the regular guitar up with a pedal, maybe coat hangers coming up and hooking onto the strings and something that they could step on to pull that string and make it sound like a pedal. So there was such a demand that 
shot Jackson and I didn't have any trouble getting uh, creating interest in the Shogun guitar at that time. Everybody wanted one, so they moved quite fast. Yeah, it was the the discovery years. Yeah, yeah, the tinkering. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And how did your career as a musician continue? All of a sudden, there were a lot more gigs for pedal players, weren't there? <laughs> yes. Some of the uh, some of the regular steel players that had spent so many years here, some refused to go to pedals, so they kind of kind of uh, drifted off and, <laughs> and uh, the new pedal players kind of eased in and started creating their own own sounds and different styles to do that. But that took a while. I remember uh, probably five, six years before it really evolved into something that made sense to me anyway, because uh, it was all discovery. So some of it was good, some was bad. <laughs> I'd love to get your thoughts on tape on Alvino Ray. Oh, well, Alvino uh, <clears throat> was quite popular when I was, before I ever started playing steel. But yet, I still was attracted to his sound, and I didn't know it was a steel guitar. So he had a big band uh, at that time, uh, brass section and all that that uh, no other steel player ever had. So. That was something unique in itself, and uh, he had quite a few popular records at, uh, when I was when I was a child. So I was introduced through him uh, through uh, local radio in in uh, South Bend, Indiana, because there was no country music. So I guess he was the first steel player I ever heard. Yeah. What style does he have? How do you... Well, I would describe it as a uh, raking style. Uh, he would use the bar. You know, they use the bar in the left hand, and instead of playing with the fingers and thumb like this today, he would rake his chords with the thumb pick and uh, used mostly chords instead of two and three part harmony melodies and things like that. He would play four and five, six part chords, and he had a sliding style that. Uh, you could hear the chords change through the slides, which, which was his own own thing and quite unique. Another friend of ours at the museum is Speedy West. What are oh, your yeah. thoughts on Speedy? <laughs> well, he was my hero. <laughs> is that right? I had my first pedal guitar built just like Speedy's. I had to have every pedal change. I had to have the built-in ashtray. Everything that Speedy had came on my guitar. And they were about a thousand dollars in nineteen oh when did I get that? Fifty in the fifties. Fifty-three or something, fifty-four. Yeah, I got it in fifty-four. bucks. Yeah. And that was some heavy, heavy duty cash back then. So you can imagine what kind of guitar it was. It had a panel on the front name inlaid, Speedy's was like that, so I had to have it. <laughs> I wanted nothing, no stone unturned, so anyway, I ended up with this gorgeous Bigsby guitar, and uh, I forgot what got me here, uh, what was the, uh, oh my, yeah, Speedy. So uh, quite naturally, I knew everything Speedy 
Quest didn't wear instrumentals because I had his tuning. How could I? How could I not? <laughs> so that pleased me. I knew if I was doing something, it would be right because it was the way he did it. You remember so. the first time you met him? Yes. Well, I don't. Maybe not. I think I was thinking the first time I met him was at a steel convention in St. Louis. Uh, that's the first time I can remember offhand meeting him. Yeah. He was quite a card. <laughs> and he was still playing at the time. He's, he's not active lately, but uh, still playing a little. <clears throat> now what's his style like? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dare I it's, ask? <laughs> it's hard to describe. He did a uh, uh, abstract. I don't know. It's, he had. Um, in fact, his style was what made him so popular. He was so completely away and different from anybody else. He had the picking thing going like all other steel players, or the chords, but he also had, he would slam the bar and run it up the uh, neck and make all kind of oddball sounds. And took, he had what they call a crash bar effect, which is you grab the bar and kind of tense your wrist and you go up the neck like that and it goes kick, 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 kick. <laughs> and that was one of his trademark sounds. So that's, that kind of describes his style, which <laughs> you might have to describe graphically more than music. So one thing to point out before we continue with this episode is just how great the questions are, first off, Dan, and second, how amazing this is organized, Ashley. Just so good because all of these different guys are talking about the other guys in the podcast. It's almost <laughs> like they knew we were going to make this episode. Um, and it's, I mean, it's because they were all inspired by each other, which is beautiful. But mm. I mean, like hearing Scotty talking about Elvino and then Buddy Emmons was talking about Alvino as well, but talked about Speedy West a little bit at the end there. And guess who we're going to be hearing from next? Hey, hey. Speedy West himself. Yeah, Speedy. Wow, what a great guy. You know, he was born on a farm and he never got that farmer out of his system. You know, he had <laughs> ranches and farms all throughout his entire life, um, even to the point where in his retirement from music. Uh, although I don't think he really ever retired from music, he still had a, a ranch and that's where I interviewed him in Oklahoma. Uh, just a really great guy, you know, very humble. And, you know, I got to go feed the animals after this interview, you know, and, and uh, I heard many a time that there would be a recording session in New York that he'd say, okay, well, we got to wrap it up because I've got chores to do at home. They're not going to do themselves. <laughs> so, you know, really kind of a funny balance of his life. But I think it really worked because he was really intense when he recorded. You know, he you could just hear in his playing some sophisticated melodies, uh, some sophisticated rhythms, not not for the faint of heart when it comes to the pedal guitar and and um, and the steel guitar. And what was really cool to me is that you can really hear his personality. You know, just a sort of a golly shucks, you know, uh, unassuming, you know, not, not pretentious at all, but boy, does he have the chops, you know, um, really, really cool. And I, I was just so um, happy to interview him when I called him and said, I want to come over. He says, you like pork chops? Yeah. We're going to throw <laughs> some on the uh, grill when you come. I'm like, 
Yes, I'll be right <laughs> like, over. Feed me. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm, I remember I'm eating this awesome pork chop and I took a bite and I looked over and there he was eating with me. And I thought, I'm eating pork chops with Speedy West. <laughs> okay, how cool is this? One of the first albums I ever got, I think it's got to be in the top five first albums uh, was Speedy West and Jimmy Bryant. And uh, he's going to talk about uh, Jimmy, who we did not get to interview. He passed away before this program started. But that team, wow, dynamic duo, no doubt about it. Great, great musicianship. And they fed off each other perfectly. A great example, uh, a recommended song is the Steel Guitar Rag. Just a fantastic thing, showing speedy speed, but also showing the the knowledge uh, uh, of how to transition from one chord to another and play off of Jimmy's instruments. So, uh, yeah, fantastic. You know, the other thing about Speedy is that he was uh, really involved with the music products industry as well. He was a, a road rep for Fender, uh, hawking their pedal guitars, going to Manny's Music and Sam Ash and selling them. Um, and if they wanted to have a little demonstration, he'd be more than happy to show them how the instrument works, which talk about a road rep. I mean, <laughs> if you want an example of how it works, how about the guy who basically invented its popularity? I mean, unbelievable. I would uh, just and, fake ignorance and be like, I have no idea how the steel guitar works. Please play it for me because I want to hear <laughs> you play. Sell, sell tickets to that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he really introduced the pedal. Uh, part of it, uh, you know, being able to change chords um, and, and utilizing your knee to that little bar underneath that uh, changes the pitch and dynamic of the instrument. Uh, he definitely introduced it to country music and was an influence on uh, Bud Isaac, who gets a heck of a lot of credit for really putting it on the map. Uh, because Speedy didn't necessarily have a big hit record with it, but he definitely brought it to the attention of country. Um, and thanks to uh, another great builder, uh, we were talking about Herb Remington, who builds the uh, instruments. Another guy was Paul Bigsby, who's really well known for early invention, um, taking off the um, solid body electric guitar and hollow body electric guitar. He also made plenty of great pedal and steel guitars uh, going back to 1948 he had a relationship with uh, Speedy uh, so Speedy helped sell some of his instruments and I believe although I, I didn't really ask him directly you know I kind of wish I did I do believe that he actually helped modify some of Mr. Bigsby's instruments as well so a great influence without a doubt. No and it's amazing because all of these players um, were involved with the uh, manufacturer you know whether it was Fender and then Showbud and all these different ones. It's like they all, they, they weren't just players. They loved the instrument and they wanted to improve it and, um, you know, <clears throat> really be a part of that. And I think that that's such a, such a cool, well-rounded uh, individual that it wants to know, wants to play it, but also wants to help improve it or, you know, make it even better than than it was. So. Yeah. And it benefits everyone playing the instrument because they're mm -hmm. always just going to keep improving and keep finding new things to add. Mm -hmm. And awesome. I mean, these guys are 
pretty big hitters. So, I mean, if they want to improve something, I think it's a pretty good, good idea to do that. <laughs> well, it's really cool too. I think you're alluding a little bit to the, the frustration that the three of us had in putting this together because there's so much to be said and we've been so blessed to have so many different perspectives. So we're kind of focusing on the pioneers of the players right now, although they also helped with the innovations. And then we're going to hear about innovators later who were also mostly players who had an idea, hey, if I did this and did that, we could get a different instrument. So we're going to be hearing about that, I believe, in a different podcast. But the modification of the instrument, I think, is a very good point and one that all of these guys played a very big role in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, getting back into our podcast, we are going to be hearing from the man we were just talking about, Speedy Wes. Um, also figuring out, also finding out how he got his nickname, Speedy West. It's not his real name, but that's what he went by. <laughs> In case anybody was wondering. Spoiler um, alert. <laughs> I don't know. All of a sudden, I just want to have some pork chops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the uh, sauce that he put on top. Oh, Ooh. never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> now I want to know what the sauce was. <laughs> well, right. it was like a relish, but extra onions. I, no, it wasn't applesauce. It was way better. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I'm going to have to look up and see if I can find the Speedy West pork chop sauce recipe there. He's, he's innovating instruments and, and sauce food. for pork chops. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that right. reminds me, we should have a podcast about food. Ooh. Or the I'll, food that you've enjoyed with your interviewees. Yeah. Yes, well, yes. I don't know that they actually talk a lot about food, but almost all of them remind me somehow of food. <laughs> <laughs> Your two loves, music and food. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, getting back into the podcast, here is Speedy West talking a little bit about his um, introduction into music and the steel guitar and also a little bit about his career. And like I said before, how he got his nickname, Speedy West. My dad played rhythm guitar and sang gospel music, but uh, that's the extent of it. Uh, I was the only one in our family, and as far as I know, they ever became professional. Mm. I've got a brother, or did have, and Cole Gene, he couldn't even tune a radio without getting two stations at once. You know, he had no music ability whatsoever. Isn't that funny? And he was my full brother, and uh, but he just, just wasn't in him. But he's a great mechanic. And it's funny how they turn out like that. So what inspired you to lean towards music? Well, I'll start out with that, if you want me to. Yes, please. Are you ready? Anytime. Uh, Back in the early 30s, I met a bunch of boys, brothers. There's three of them, Ralph, Doral, and Eldon Klein, the Klein brothers. And them and their mother and dad moved into Springfield, Missouri, my hometown, from Kansas City. And they already, they were about my age. They were between, we, we were all between 10 and 13 years old. And uh, so uh, they'd already been doing a radio show in Kansas City once a week at that age. They were great. They sang great together. And all three of them played their instruments. And Ralph, the older one, played what we know of as a Hawaiian guitar. It sits on your lap and play Hawaiian-type music on it. So uh, 
I'd go home with them after school in the afternoon, and and uh, we'd play softball out in the backyard. And when uh, it got time for them to rehearse, their mother cracked the whip. She'd stick her head out the back door and say, all right, you guys, get in there and start that practicing. So they'd invite me to go in. Well, uh, their parents saw how I was so intrigued with that steel guitar. And they were thoughtful enough that they found out where I lived. And they went down and introduced themselves to my parents and said, you should get that boy a guitar. Says, He's just glued to it. So that's how my career started. So uh, then uh, I got married and I was 16 years old and went on the farm. And I started milking from 30 to 33 cows night and morning by hand and doing all my farm work with a team of horses. So it's very hard work, and I got acquainted every Saturday if, if I had my work caught up, my fence mending and done and everything, I'd head for the radio station to hear those guys play on the radio. And uh, so they got seeing me hanging around there, and they finally invited me in the studio with them. They said, would you like to come in the studio? A lot of people out there in the audience, but none of them was showing the attention that I was, how I was loving it. So I got to go in and sit down with them, and first thing you know, I, we, uh, they asked me to come on. They said, do you play any now? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll play a little, just around home. And they said, well, we're going out on an old pie supper. That's where the girl bakes the pie and the boys, they put it up for auction. Whoever buys that pie, they eat together. And uh, have, they hold these at old country schoolhouses, one-room schoolhouses. So uh, they took me on this. Well, first of all, this uh, guy from uh, uh, a sailor boy come walking down the street, and we was down at the Pepsi-Cola place right out by the sidewalk through the glass window. They could see, he could see us in there, and we was having a jam session, and and someone got up and let him in. And he says to me, he says, uh, he says, uh, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a farm boy. I said, I milk a bunch of cows. And he says, well, you're a dad blame fool. Says, said, you could make $25 a night playing that guitar out in San Diego. I said, you gotta be kidding. He said, that sounds like all the money in the world to me, you know. And uh, so uh, I I kept that in the back of my mind. But I always wanted to go to California and see the palm trees and everything. Well, anyhow, they took me on this pie supper deal. And that night, Slim Wilson, who was the best known radio personality that was there in Springfield on KWTO, uh, he introduced everybody that night and when he got to me he says I want you to meet our newest member Speedy West he didn't tell me he's going to do it or nothing my name is Wesley Wesley West and uh, he said he called me Speedy well I would have never took on that name back home 
I'd been embarrassed in front of my parents and my brother and sister and my cousins and everybody, my friends. I would have never done it. So I decided I was going to sell my livestock and pay the bank off. And if I had enough money left, I was going to head for California to see if I could get in show business. And I had a two-and-a-half-year-old boy. And I had an old 1936 12-cylinder Lincoln Zephyr. That's what I went to California in. And we was going across that desert. And I got to remember that night at the schoolhouse when Slim introduced me to Speedy. But I would have never taken it home because it had been embarrassing around my folks and friends. But I thought, I don't know a soul in California. And when I get to California, that's kind of a tricky little name. I'm going to try to get in show business. I'm going to be Speedy West. Well, probably through the years, through the last 35, 40, 50 years, there's been thousands of people asking me, how did you get your name? Because I do play a lot of fast stuff, you know. I play a lot of slow, pretty melody stuff. But anyhow... I tell them then how I got it. The Slim gave it to me, just hung it on me, and I decided to take it on when I got to California. Well, the name stuck, and I think it had a lot to do with my career. I really think stuff like that has uh, has an impact. So, uh, anyhow, I went to work. I got me a job in a dry cleaning plant, and I worked six days a week and six, day, six nights a week in beer joints, just trying to get my foot in show business. And it just almost killed me. I just work it. That's all I was doing was working and eat, eating and sleeping very little. Hmm. And uh, so I ended up uh, uh, work, I was working at Martin Cleaning Works in Southgate, and uh, I was working with Spade Cooley's 23-piece orchestra. Mm. And Spade had a bad habit of firing. I bet he fired Noel Boggs 12, 15 times, and then he gave him a little raise to get him to come back. Spade hit that bottle pretty heavy, and uh, he was a great showman. And so... One Friday night, I said, Spade, I'd like to talk to you a minute before we go home. I says, uh, I've been here five months now. And I says, how am I doing? I says, if I'm doing okay, I want to quit my day job and put my whole heart into music. All son, he called everybody son. If he's 30 years older than him, he called him son. <laughs> he said, all son, says he, he slapped me on the back, said, we're going to make more money than we can count. Well, that sounded good to me. And uh, so anyhow, that was Friday night. Saturday morning, I quit my day job. Saturday night, we went to work out the Santa Monica Ballroom. And it, by the end of the evening, he was pretty loaded. And he said, don't no one leave. I'll talk to you. No one leave yet. Wait till the crowd gets out of here. So we had six, seven thousand people in that ballroom. It was a big, huge thing. And uh, so uh, 
So they cleared out a little. He says, I want to tell you something. He said, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And he fired 13 of us, and I was one of them. No reason at all. Fired the girl singer and all these other guys. And uh, so the next morning the phone rang, the spade calling me. And he is actually whimpering and crying kind of like a baby. <laughs> and he says, please forgive me, son. I said, I was out of my mind. I didn't know what I'd done. I said, no, Spade. I said, you fired me twice. And he said, no, I didn't. Just once, just last night. I said, no, that's two times, the first and the last. <laughs> so that's twice you fired me, first and last. I said, now, if we're ever booked on the same show together, if you want to be friends, I'll be your friend. But I'll never work another minute for you. And so that's where our relationship ended. And I went to work for Hank Penny at a place called Pops Willow Lake. And from Hank, then I started recording uh, with different artists. First record I ever made was a thing called Candy Kisses. George Morgan had recorded the big hit record on it in Nashville. And Eddie Kirk, who worked our show with Cliffy Stone's Hometown Jamboree, uh, Capitol Records, he was a Capitol artist, Eddie was. And uh, so he, uh, uh, Capitol wanted to cover this like they do, they'll get a hot record and you know, people, a lot of other artists to jump on it and cover it. So they called me in to do this song, Candy Kisses, as first record I ever recorded. And uh, from then, I was called in to do other sessions and other sessions. And the first thing, it just got out of hand where I was doing average two and three record dates a day, plus a daily radio show. And that went on for years. Hmm. And in a five-year period, uh, I cut over 6,000 recordings with 177 different vocalists. Plus, 1950, there was a big, big, well, there's a monstrous hit for K-Star in Tennessee, Ernie, called I'll Never Be Free. And the other side, if I'll never be free, was uh, ain't nobody's business but my own. Well, that was what was supposed to be the hit, but I'll never be free is the one that took off. Mm. And it became so big that Lee Gillette, who was the big man at Capitol, he called me at the radio station just as I was getting off the show one day, and he says, could you come to the office a minute? I want to talk to you. And uh, I said, yeah. So I drove over, and I had no idea what he was wanting. And he says, you know, we got a hit on our hand. I said, that's what I understand. He said, this thing's a monster. And uh, he said, we've got other companies pressing for us. Wow. And we do that for each other. When we have a big hit, well, the other companies will jump in and press for it. So anyhow, Lee says, we've already had a board of directors meeting. And we'd like to offer you your own record contract. Well, I like to swallow my tongue. That never entered my mind ever being a recording artist under my own name, you know. I just thrilled to death that I was getting to record and back up these vocalists. That was a big thrill for me. And meet a lot of these people, like Merle Travis in Tennessee and all these people. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so uh, I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no. He said, we're going to give you a free hand. Now, what I mean by that, an A&R man has the last say of what an artist will or will not record. I don't care if they're Bing Crosby or who they are. If they don't like the song, they say, no, you're not going to record it. Mm. Well, they said, Lee said, told me, he says, since you don't read music, we couldn't pick out anything for you. We're going to give you a free hand. If you want to cut old pop standards, cut them. If you want to cut country standards, cut them. If you want to write something, if you can write something, cut that. You'll make more money if it happens to take off. So they gave me a complete free hand. Well, it wasn't long. I cut a, cut a session. I used Jimmy Bryan on it, greatest guitar player that ever was. Well, we'd been working together behind these vocalists, and we worked just like a glove together. Mm. We really enjoyed each other's work. And uh, so after I cut my first album, or first uh, single, uh, two sides, then I talked them into hiring Jimmy. I said, and Lee says, you know, that's just exactly what I'm thinking. says, if you guys would team up together as a team, you'd get a, both of you get a shot. Every time a disc jockey played one of your records, they'd say Speedy West and Jimmy Brown or Jimmy Bryant and Spe with Speedy West, mm. you know. And uh, that way you get double shot at it. And I think it's a good idea. And uh, so anyhow, that's what happened. We teamed up as a team and we go in, you cut four songs in three hours. That's, uh, that's what's normal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we go in and we cut two of my songs and two of Jimmy's. And we ended up recording most of our records uh, uh, we wrote this material ourselves. However, I cut a whole wedding album and I didn't record or didn't write any of them. I just cut a whole wedding tunes. But uh, uh, that way we we really got a good shot at it and uh, with the disc jockeys. And the biggest record we ever had was a thing I wrote called Speeding West. And it's a very simple melody. You know, well, that became our number one seller all through the years. All right. So that was uh, Speedy West talking a little bit about uh, his background. And you now finally know where he got his nickname from. So it's no longer a spoiler. Mike. <laughs> Um, and then another iconic player that we're going to hear from uh, next and who has been referenced, I think, at least once already from one of our interviewees uh, is Bud Isaacs, who pretty much everyone, I would say, at least knows of the name or has heard of it. Um, he had a pretty big hit called Slowly, but everyone really liked that. From the stories that I heard, that was something that other musicians heard that and was like, hold on, I need to have the tuning just like him. What, who is this guy? I need to know everything about how he's playing. So definitely a huge uh, part of the history of steel guitar. 
Yeah, Bud has a really interesting background too. He was born on a farm in uh, Bedford, um, Indiana, and um, his dad was a mill worker and somehow still saved to get uh, Bud to go to music school, which he did and exceeded in. And by the time he was 14 years old, he was already in one of the biggest bands in country music, the Pee Wee King Band. Uh, Pee Wee King is best known for writing the Tennessee Waltz, which became the state song. Who writes a song that becomes the state anthem? <laughs> um, and he was on the Grand Old Opry at the age of 14 years old. Uh, just an amazing career. And then he helped introduce um, a product by Gibson Guitars called the Electro Harp, which is basically an early version of the uh, steel guitar with pedals. And uh, uh, Paul Bigsby, again, uh, the luthier in California, uh, worked with Bud on some of the ideas he had. Uh, and one of the things that came from that conversation and relationship was the double neck eight string steel guitar. Um, so a pioneer for sure. And Ashley, you're absolutely right. He was such an influence on other people and everyone was trying to figure out how did he make that song, that those sounds. So uh, in 1954, when uh, the country singer Webb Pierce recorded the song, Slowly, the introduction is done by Bud on his guitar, and it was like scratching your head. Everybody wanted to know what the heck was that? How did he do that? And really, one of the secrets was he was pushing the pedals while the strings were still ringing, uh, and nobody really had done that before. It was always dampening and then going on to the next chord. So while it was still ringing, he's doing other manipulations of the chords, and that made that enormously iconic sound at the very beginning of that song um, that if you haven't heard, that's our recommendation for sure, Slowly by Webb Pierce, um, because that really changed this instrument. I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind that that's what really perpetuated people's thoughts about, wow, we should be using that. That would be really fun. We could use it in this song that I'm writing or, hey, wouldn't that be great with a guitar in the background, blah, blah, blah. So um, without a doubt, and to the point of um, for the longest time, and I don't know because I haven't been there really recently, um, but the Country Music Hall of Fame's a fantastic display in Nashville they had um, the first time I went, I counted, they had about 18 songs on display that you could go in these really cool, like listing booths uh, and uh, play the whole song. And slowly was one of about 18 in the history of country music that they decided was so influential that they would have its entirety played. And that tells you really how important that was. And when, when I got to interview, Bud, he was so nice is he was just, he had so much fun talking about how Showbud started because, of course, the Bud in Showbud is him. Um, and playing at the NAM show, uh, he believes the first time he was at NAM was in 1956 playing the steel pedal guitar. How cool wow. is that? <laughs> so great history with us and the industry, and of course, an icon in music, without a doubt. So real quick, before we jump into the Bud Isaacs interview, I just wanted to mention that if you head over to the NAM website, namm.org slash library, and check out our advanced search, you can search for tags. And we have the steel guitar and pedal steel guitar tags. Um, and then you'll see everyone that we've interviewed um, 
under those topics. And it's it's super cool to actually see the interviews. Some of them actually have their full interview posted. Um, so I recommend checking that out. And without further ado, here's Bud Isaacs talking about his passion for music and his career with the pedal steel guitar. One of the things maybe that we could start with, Bud, is you have had such a long and passionate career in music. I wonder where did that passion come from? Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? Yes, I did. Well, my mom loved steel guitar. And every time a steel guitar come on the radio, she was right there listening. She loved it. And sooner or later, I got old enough to take lessons. So she sent me to the School of Music to learn how to play steel guitar. And uh, I took him for a while. Finally, I got tired of it, the way they played, and I had different ideas till I quit and started a thing of my own. And, but when I was 14, that's when all of this has happened, I hopped on a freight train, which stopped at my hometown of Bedford, Indiana, and caught it and went to Louisville and hitchhiked the rest of the way to Nashville. And he was taking auditions because the war was going on then. And there weren't many people around to play. It was all gone of any age at all. And uh, so Judge Hayes, Solomon old judge, they called him at the Opry, he would take an intro in uh, auditions. And he told me, he, I played for him, and he said, I got you a job, a good job with Pee Wee King. I said, fine, one of my favorites. And he said, well, I got you in there. Now, how old are you? And I made a mistake by saying 14. He said, I'm sorry, bud, but we can't take you. You're too young for the road. When you're over 16, you'll come back, we'll have a job for you. I can promise you that. And after I, after so long, I was about 17, 18 years old, I went back and got with little Jimmy Dickens and played with him on the road for several years and got to doing record sessions with different people. And, but I wanted to, I wasn't getting the sound I wanted to have my studio. I wanted to change like three fiddles. I wanted to change my part, little parts in it. Not not just play straight all the time. And uh, Paul Bixby built me a pedal steel. I loved it too. And I took it to Nashville in with me. And uh, by this time I'd work with Red Foley too. And uh, I liked it so well that I wouldn't have took anything for it right at that time. And slowly came along <coughs> with Webb Pierce, needed a steal. So I've done this slowly with him. It was hard to get on there because he didn't want it at first. That was the biggest record he ever had. <laughs> and it was supposed to be the fastest record to ever hit number one. 
up to that time, I don't know about today, but it's amazing. That, uh, he was really going in. Yeah. And uh, after that, I went to Springfield, Missouri with Red Foley. Wrote the Ozark Jubilee. I was up there about three years. I got drafted in the Army <laughs> at that time. So I'd done two years with them. I went back to Nashville with little Jimmy and other artists too. They all wanted the pedal steel on their record, which no one had any. And I got all the sessions there was right then for a while. Kept me pretty busy. But I got full of that, got tired of it, and I just moved. And we was on the road to Arizona. And uh, I liked it so well, and it was in the winter time, and the weather was so cold in Nashville and warm here. I just decided I was going to move out here. This was a place to live, as far as I was concerned, and still is. So I decided no more Nashville. I was tired of it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a great number of questions I would love to ask you about your instrument. Um, maybe we could start with the first steel that you had. How did you get it, and what was it? Well, the first pedal steel. It was a Bigsby. Paul Bigsby built it in down in California. But the first one I I tried to build was one of old double neck steel. I used barn door hinges. Bay Lamar, Door Springs, everything I get a hold of. And I, I could get the sound I wanted for about two licks. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> Had a hard time. Now, did you talk to Paul Bigsby? Did you know him and ask Doing him? Doing very well. Tell me a little bit about him and how uh, that came about. The steel I had with me that he took in on trade. Uh, he uh, he laughed till he cried almost. What was it, a Gibson? It was a Gibson pedal, pedal steel, electro harp. And I had that thing so wired up and uh, everything wired on it and off of it and everything else. Uh, Paul got laughing about that. And he gave me pretty good money down payment on my Bigsby because of that. I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, I'm going to hang it on the wall right above my bench. So whenever I need to laugh, I can mark at that thing. <laughs> ever since then, Begsby's I finally sold my Begsby. I was an army, and I had a Gibson too, and I was working with a Gibson then, and uh, I was an army. And well, uh, I can't think what I was going to say. About trading in the... Uh, oh, Bigsby. Uh, yeah, I traded to Bigsby. And uh, he hung on the wall so I could get a big laugh out of it. But uh, I, I, had, uh, I got my Bigsby finally. 
I sold it to a guy when I was in the Army for $250. He just sold it for 80000 and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gave him two cents to have it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't you and Gibson, you created another guitar? Yeah, I, I designed for, uh, several things for Gibson. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, it don't amount to too much. Uh, he just, he wanted my ideas on pedal steels and different things, different things to put on them. So. He built one, and I carried it around with me for quite a while. It's a triple neck with two pe with uh, four pedals. I liked it real well, but I wore it out. It didn't take long. The road to wear one out. This one here is 40 years old. It's a rustler. He built he built nice steel. It's been so tough, it's been thrown around, dumped by airplanes. Anytime you fly with one, they put it at the other luggage, and it goes up, thing, bang. In conveyor belts on the airplanes. Broke his keys off. Were there other people playing triple necks when you were? Yeah, triple necks, yeah. Was it common back then? Uh, uh, Buddy Emmons was playing a ah. triple neck, uh, but he, he, believe it or not, he followed me around, and so did Jimmy Day, to see what I was doing, how my pedals worked, and uh, to get onto no no time to how he could play, play them pedals like he invented it. Tell me about the pedals. What did you do different, do you think? Well, the, at first, Alvino Ray had, had one, a pedal steel, long years ago. And uh, but all he could do was put it flat down and, and cross and hit a chord, another chord up here. He couldn't play, he couldn't invert uh, the notes on them, you know. And I, I started uh, these things where you could just change whatever strings you wanted changed to make different chords. And uh, so that, that was it as far as he went. He was one of my favorite people. He was a fine man. Smart guy too, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Very clever. Well, tell him how do you changed your strings different from him. How, what's your tuning and how you pull the strings? I did. Well, from A to flat to C, whatever. Yeah. Where he, I could take an augmented cards and things. That wasn't on there for, for his, so he had this big band. They hit a card, he hit a card, band, it could, Two or three chords, and pretty soon he bound. And it's uh, really nice. He sure filled him in good. And uh, why don't you explain your tuning? How one string pulls, 
I can't do all of them that way. No, no, just what to, no, I mean, just tell us what You change any kind, anything you wanted without doing your bar, you know. I still do. Turn the bar in like that, you know, to get one of these can take care of several pedals. Using it right. Jerry Bird was awful good at it. One of my favorite people. Did anybody teach you that or did you figure that out on your own? On my own. Just fooling around at home. Too lazy to work. Too lazy to steal. I won't finish that. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife put her finger up. Yeah, she knew where you were going. <laughs> Tell you later. <laughs> so once again, that was Bud Isaacs talking about his career and just an amazing name to hear from. A huge name in pedal steel, obviously the show bud and everything involving that is just so cool. Um, up next, we are going to be hearing from another great name. I feel like it just keeps going and going with, with the big <laughs> names. Hit after hit after hit. <laughs> we are going to be hearing from Buddy Merrill. Very exciting. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what an icon. And, you know, he has got such a following even to this day. It's amazing how many people really uh, admire him and appreciate his contributions. Um, you know, one of the things about Buddy to me is that he wasn't afraid to have um, the roots of the Hawaiian guitar as part of his style. I, I think some other players really wanted to step out and say, wait, this could be a jazz instrument. This can be a country instrument. You know, this can, this can even be a classical instrument. I think um, Buddy was much more interested in its roots and said, hey, we all know it can play great Hawaiian music. Why not embrace that? Um, so, I mean, Beyond the Reef, what a fantastic recording he does of that song, Songs of the Island. And one of my favorite Bing Crosby tunes, he does an amazing job. You guys should check out Sweet Leilani. Uh, great, great song that uh, Buddy does a wonderful job with, without a doubt. Yeah, and it's amazing just that, I, I know we've kind of talked about this already before, but it's amazing just the easy transition between genres that the steel guitar can make. Um, you know, I've always kind of associated it with country music, uh, and I guess subconsciously Hawaiian music, but it's just kind of amazing to see the the way that it's been incorporated into other types of genre, other genres throughout the years. And, you know, just to kind of add in the different flavor or uh, different spice, as I think you said earlier, Dan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without <laughs> so, a doubt. Yeah, it's definitely amazing just to kind of hear all of the little places that's popped up over the years. And, you know, it'd be really awesome if all of us would appreciate it a little bit more, you know, now that we're hearing from some of these guys and hopefully hear some of the music as well. When we hear a popular song that has a steel guitar in it, we might recognize it more than we would have before. And I think we're going to be surprised how often that spice is actually in recordings that we all know and love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. 
So let's jump into this interview with Buddy Merrill. He's going to be talking about how he got into music and his passion and how it led to a career with the steel guitar. Um, just a heads up, around halfway through this segment, uh, he's going to be showing off some photos that you will be able to see if you're watching the video version of this podcast on NAM.org. Otherwise, you just have to imagine what they look like on the audio <laughs> only yeah, version. It's to entice you to like go yeah, watch the video because now you're really going to want to know what these photos <laughs> look like. very funny. Very cool. A first so, for our podcast. That's exciting. Yeah, very exciting that we can actually show stuff off. So <laughs> without further ado, here is Buddy Merrill. Well, Buddy, thank you so much for having me come over. I sure appreciate well, it's it. It's a real pleasure to have you aboard. Thank you so much. You know, one of the things that's uh, very clear to me in listening to your music and knowing a little bit about your career is your passion for music. And I wonder for you, where did that come from? Did you have a lot of music in your house when you were growing Absolutely, up? Absolutely, right from the beginning. Really? Yes. The beginning of time, uh, I was around music. My father was a musical, uh, and his family was musical. And so from the beginning, I was around it. Mm. And uh, he was a guitar player, a singer, and... We went through life. I, I would after I would sit around and play drums. I would play like uh, the van or something. I'd play time, you know, with my father, you know. And this is before I could play anything, you know. Then uh, around, I was suppose I was six, five or six. I took a real interest in the steel guitar, and. Um, <clears throat> he bought me a, Dad bought me a, a guitar that I converted into a steel guitar by changing the nut on the keyboard and playing with a case knife, I would play, you know. And uh, I played that for a couple of years, you know, learning, just learning things, you know. Then one day he surprised me with a Gibson single neck lap steel. And I was thrilled. I mean, it was electric. It had an amplifier and everything, you know. And uh, <clears throat> that's what started it. And basically, 1947, I started playing some gigs with my dad, you know, because he had a band, and I joined his band, and you know. And that's where it began. I played steel. Well, when I was... Fifteen, I got a twin, one of those big twin steels, and and worked jobs with that, and and I could get into nightclubs in Utah. That's where I was raised, and I could get into nightclub as long as I was accompanied by a parent or something. As luck would have it, my father was in the band, see? <laughs> so it worked out real good, you know. And that's how I started learning how to do things, you know. <clears throat> That's where it started. Then I, then I took an interest in the electric guitar, regular. And one of my, well, two of my real heroes were Les Paul and Chet Atkins at that time. So I just learned from their recordings and stuff like that. And that's where I began that. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Now, just to back up a little bit on your dad, did he also grow up in Utah? Yeah, he was raised in in Utah, and uh, um, yeah, and he was always in music there for some reason. 
What was know? his instrument? He, he was. He was also a guitarist. Play, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That he was a vocalist first. Ah. You know? Yeah. So that's where that began. That's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's amazing how that passion develops, isn't it? To watch that grow. Yeah, and I, if you're to ask me how that does that, I don't know. I have no. It's just you have it, you have something, and you just automatically, there's something nobody tells you to do. You know what I mean? That <laughs> kind of leads me to a story. I was, Dad thought it'd be a great idea to take steel guitar lessons from a real, we, in Utah there in Salt Lake, we had a real good Hawaiian guitar teacher, you know. And I spent a couple of lessons with him, and he had to drop me. He, he's, he told my father, I can't teach him anything. There's nothing I can teach this boy, you know. So you're wasting your money here. You know? <laughs> he said, he's beyond me, so you take it. You know? <laughs> and that's the way that went. In fact, the next steel guitar I bought, it was a triple neck Fender. Um, I bought that from from uh, Johnny Hickey. Yeah, that was his name. I bought that guitar from him. And I had it for a long time. Hmm. Yeah. So that's how that started. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Now tell me a little bit about your dad's band and the sort of gigs that you did with him. Okay, let's see. Look at that. How old are you there? I was 11. <laughs> and that's your dad there in the middle? Mm hmm Oh, and what was his first name? Les. Oh, Les. That's my name. That's my, what my actual first name is also. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful picture. And I love this one, too. What kind of amplifier is that? Do you recall? The Rickenbacker. Oh, it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you look at it carefully, the name R-I-C-K is in the grill of it. Oh, oh yeah, of course. I see it now. <laughs> now that you pointed it out. Yeah. yeah it's... Wow. And, and uh, what instrument is that that you have? That's a twin steel guitar. Oh, it's got two necks on Sixteen strings. And that's that one down there, six string, single neck. Okay. Yeah. And this is the same guitar, except I was a little bit older. This was. Oh wow! Look this at is that. KDYL TV down there. We were doing TV there, so. Oh, that's neat. This isn't. It, it's a photograph, but it's been re. It's a computerized. It looks great. Because the, the original was kind of destroyed, and so. So tell me by those pictures, it look it looks like your dad had more of a country western. Sort it of was band. a co country and western band, right? Right. And did he find good audiences out there in uh, Utah? Or was there oh a yeah, we used to work um, uh, these big halls up in like Fish Lake area and Richfield, and they all had big ballrooms and ah. stuff. We'd even do church jobs, you know. Because the halls were huge, you know. <laughs> so we, we had plenty of work for us. Uh, in those days, with me being so young, I didn't work too much. And Dad always looking for other work. You know, he gets bored. He got bored with everything quite quickly. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, but when we moved to California, he, uh, we moved here for a reason. We moved here for more opportunity. You know, 
We came here in 1950, and uh, he got a real good job at Zenith Plastics. And uh, that's when I started fooling around with the multiple recordings. Yeah. Very ancient stuff because I used a record player and a tape recorder, tape recorder. And from that I used the, the sound on sound thing bouncing from one to the other. But of course, with a system like that, quality would soon it would die. For every track you made, it would go down a little bit, a little bit here. Uh, strange as it may seem, though, I do have some of those left, you know, from the old days, but I, Lawrence Welk had started a, he promoted a all-American, um, okay, let me get this right, uh, all-American contest, that's what it was, uh, competition, you know, musical competition stuff, and the way you join, you send in recordings. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, and the record, I had plenty of that, and I had even some whole tunes that I'd done. You know. So I sent in Mr. Sandman and In a Little Spanish Town. They were back to back on a, on a disc, you know, a little disc. And I didn't actually, I take that back, I didn't send it in, my mother sent it in. And uh, she thought this would be great, you know. <laughs> so she sent it in to see what had happened. And you know something? Lawrence Walk called me a couple of months later and informed me that I had won the competition. I thought, you've got to be joking. I didn't even want to do this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, <laughs> then he called me and said, uh, you've won the competition, but... He would like to talk to me, and he wanted me to come to rehearsal with band, you know. And and he talked to me. Of course, I was well. I was young. I was in fifty. This was fifty-four. Fifty-four. I was fifty-five. I was still eighteen. So I was eighteen and seventeen in fifty-four. Hmm. And. Uh, and my dad had to go, he went with me and mom went with me and <clears throat> we went over and he wanted me to sit in on the rehearsal and I did and he had me play a few things, you know, and the band backed me up, you know, it's like they knew all the stuff anyway, you know. <laughs> and uh, he didn't hear too much from him and then he called again and said, uh, would you like to join my band? And I said, oh. well, I certainly didn't have anything else going right either. <laughs> you know, I thought that would be interesting because really I wanted to join a Western band like Spade Cooley or somebody that was there already. And and uh, with the, Lawrence Walk, was, his music is great, but I pop music, I didn't have a feel for it. You know what I mean? Hmm. And, uh, but he wanted me to join, so I, I joined on a, the basis that I just, we did, we're doing local shows there, you know, local TV, you know, KTLA, I believe. Um, and he, he thought it was a great idea, and, uh, and, uh, 
Well, I did the shows. I did the dances for a while. Didn't do whole nights because I wasn't old enough, you know. But uh, he he hired me, I, and I was stepped into a big bunch of luck, you know, because in July of 1955, he got the, they got this contract with Dodge to do a coast-to-coast -coast television network show, and I was in on the ground floor, man. You know, how much luck can one have, you know? And it was just great, and I've been with him ever since, you know. Uh, I worked with the show until 74, and even after I formally quit the band, I still did other jobs with the band. I still did television with the band. And when I, I did their last show in 82, you know. Wow. I worked with on television, and it's like I never left. Right, so that was Buddy Merrill talking uh, about his career and uh, his very long career, actually, with Lawrence Welk, mm. uh, which is also kind of a fascinating additional layer of all of that. Uh, and then coming up next, we're going to hear from Gary Morse, uh, who really talks a lot about, I have to say, the which as I've been listening to all of these interviews, I've grown more and more of an appreciation for the instrument itself. Um, and he talks a lot about how it's the mechanics of it and just how it really is a, kind of a machine and how you have to like know how to operate it and all the little gears and, you know, everything that you have to kind of shift around. And uh, I think it just does a really good job of, of kind of explaining that aspect of it, uh, but also has a fantastic career um, of playing with, you know, just for one example, Dwight Yoakam, you might've heard of him. Well, <laughs> he also brings us sort of up to modern times too. You yeah. know, we've been talking about some of these legends from way back, going back to the thirties and Buddy's career, you know, was primarily in the sixties. So it's really nice that uh, we're going to end with uh, a guy who kind of brings us up to uh, current popular country music and embraces, you know, I, I sort of avoided, except for talking about uh, Bud Isaacs, um, the fact that the the pedal guitar or a steel guitar is really utilized in country music because these other guys wanted to show its diversity in jazz and classical and other uh, genres. Uh, there's no doubt about Gary embraces its country connection, its country roots, and has played it fantastically on some amazing recordings. And you're right, Ashley, with the people like Dwight Yoakam and Colt Ford and Brooks and Dunn and Eric Church. And uh, he even did a couple of recordings with uh, one of my heroes of early rockabilly, Sonny Burgess, who we got to interview for the NAM Oral History Program. So, you know, knowing the roots of this instrument's um, country ties has really helped him develop his own style and um, really a sought after uh, instrumentalist in uh, country music for sure. And I was trying to think, you know, what song would I recommend? And this is a little bit trickier because he plays so many different styles. He has such a unique approach to playing. Um, the song I recommended for Speedy West called the uh, Steel Guitar Rag is a song that uh, 
that Gary has recorded. You might want to play his version of that song too. It's really, really fascinating to hear how different it is while paying homage to Speedy. He has his own style. Uh, his recording of uh, Gary's recording of Deep Water and also the old uh, Hank Williams senior song Jambalaya are also definitely worth listening to as well. Great musician. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this interview is perfect to end on too, because right towards the end of the segment, he's going to be talking about innovation and how you know the the steel guitar went on to more than just what it was then and that's really going to be the subject of our second part of this little podcast series that we're doing all about the steel guitar so even though this is the last voice you'll hear today you'll want to make sure you tune in in two weeks to see our part two to the steel guitar podcast saga (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that reminds me, maybe we should list some of the people that are going to be in that second segment. Does anybody yeah. have that list? Yeah. Um, and so as we cover the pioneers now, we're going to move over into our next episode talking about the innovators. Not that our pioneers weren't innovators as well, but, you know, other people. <laughs> also primarily known for their recordings. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, had to somehow differentiate them. Otherwise, again, this podcast would have been for five hours and I don't think anybody wants to hear us for that long straight through. Um, So some of the people that we're going to be highlighting uh, for the next episode are uh, Lowell uh, Keisler, uh, Junior Brown, who uh, I think most people would actually know, even if you haven't, don't know his name, you've heard his music. Um, Paul Franklin, Chuck Campbell, Jody Carver, and Kay Coster. So uh, really kind of rounding out the story of the steel guitar and it, and where it's been and where it's going and all of the stuff in between. Uh, so well for, our, for our last segment, we're going to hear from uh, Gary Morse. And like I said, he's going to talk a little bit about the mechanics and just, again, overall um, stories and just his perception of the steel guitar. And, uh, and in, at the end, he kind of touches on something that I brought up in the past segment of um, all the genres that the, the, the pedal steel and steel guitar can kind of be incorporated into and, and how he really wants to further that along and really introduce it to any genre possible. So, uh, so here is Gary Morse. I started out on acoustic guitar when I was about eight years old and uh, graduated to electric about four years later. Weren't a lot of choices back then, you know, on brands and things. But uh, And then I got really interested. I grew up originally in the Detroit area and left there for California when I was about 20 years old. But in that interim, uh, I started playing lamp steel because I loved it for blues. I actually heard some lamp steel stuff on a uh, Fleetwood Mac track. This is long before Stevie Nicks was with them when it was just a blues band. And I really fell in love with that sound. So I got an old Supro, started playing with that. That led me to playing pedal steel. And uh, and then that's what I'm best known for is pedal steel. But I still play other instruments as well. So what was the first pedal steel you played? I had an old Fender, like Sneaky Pete's, uh, like the one he used with the Burrito Brothers and Linda Ronstadt's. Uh, used a cable mechanism underneath it to pull them. Sometimes the cable would break right in the middle of a song. But... Uh, he used cables. It was very antiquated, but uh, but it worked, and they have a unique sound. As a matter of fact, I recently acquired another one just because I can't get that sound out of anything else. So, uh, but they uh, that's what I started on. Then I graduated to what one would call a more modern pedal steel. Went to uh, played some MSAs for a while. Then I 
landed with Showbuds for many, many years. Used Showbuds. I used Showbuds in all the Dwight Yoakam recordings and all that stuff. And then uh, eventually it ended up where I am now with uh, Desert Rose uh, pedal steels made out of Tucson. So, and that's what I play a majority of the time, although I play lap steel and dobro and guitar as well. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the dobro. How did you come to it? Oh, it's sort of a natural, you know, transition, I think, that you're going to want to play it to. And I play I play both fretted and square neck. The square neck, obviously, you play just like a, a, like a Hawaiian steel or a lap steel or a pedal steel. You're going to play with a bar and the same kind of technique you would for pedal steel. So uh, I've, I've got a couple of different companies I use. I use Beard. Resophonics, and uh, I have my own model that I designed with him, a seven-string one that we use for Western Swing. It's a G6 tuning. Then I use one of his regular six strings, and I also worked on designing one with National uh, as well, which is when they were doing their Smith & Young brand, which now they're not. They're just doing it all international. But we uh, came up with a wide-body, full-size body, as opposed to what Dobro does, uh, resonator and metal. So it's a, like a steel body. And uh, square neck, and a fantastic sounding guitar. So I use that as well. So dobros, I play dobro, probably almost as much as I play pedal steel these days. Say. It's very popular. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a banjo player too. I've played banjo as long as I've played steel guitar, which means a long time. And uh, so I play five string traditional banjo, but and I play usually Gibsons for that, like an RB3. But uh, in recent years. There's been so much of this, what they call ganjo or, you know, or banjitar, some people call it. They have a lot of different names for it. But it's the six-string banjo that's tuned like a guitar, in, usually in e-tuning. And it's so popular on especially what they call the bro country stuff um, that you really can't get away from using it. So if you can't beat them, join them. So uh, I've got a endorsement with the Gold Tone Company, and I use their six-string banjo to play those parts. And it's... a uh, I performed on the uh, with the house band for the ACM All Star Jam Awards just last year, and out of forty two songs, I played that ganjo as they call it on sixteen of the songs. So it's turned out to be a good thing to acquire. But um, so that that's pretty much it for the actual instruments. I've always been a real gearhead about amps and pedals and stuff, though my whole life. And I've got about I sold two of my amps recently. I'm down to twenty eight. Still got 28 amplifiers. I can imagine that crap, but I can't help it. The steel that I use most is uh, eight floor pedals, five knee levers, four regular and one vertical, and then two 10-string tunings. Mm. So you're an E9, what some people call chromatic tuning, although I saw that's funny because there's really only one chromatic, the E to the E flat. But they'll call it a chromatic tuning, and then the C6 tuning on the back neck. Uh, both fantastic tunings in their own way, and... Uh, own right and then i use uh my knee levers i will interchange so those knee levers work on both necks and i also don't like a lot of knee levers you'll find guys with eight or nine knee levers it drives me crazy so i tend to incorporate a lot of changes onto my knee levers where some guys might say well i'll say well what does your second lever do he says oh it lowers my fifth string he says do you have that change i'll say yeah but it also lowers four other strings or raises two and lowers three all on that same lever so I do that a lot, too. That consolidates how many uh, movements I have to have. That's amazing. So you got a lot going on when you wow. play pedal steel. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, and really, the trick about it is a very mechanical instrument. It's a machine. I mean, it's got 
pull not pulleys anymore, but a changer system where it's it's pulling the notes to to bend up to or to in this case flatten you know, with a knee lever or floor some floor pedals on C six actually flatten notes. The um the thing about it is though you gotta somewhere along the line transition from thinking of it mechanically to where it becomes musical. And that's when you know you've kind of made that jump. When you don't actually have to think about pushing this pedal or hitting that knee lever or even bar slanting, which you do like the old Hawaiian style, you'll slant the bar to create other pitch. You get to the point where you do that and you don't even realize you're doing it. And when you reach that point that you think apart and play it and don't even remember what levers or pedals you hit, then you've made the transition where you've become musical and not mechanical anymore. And that takes a long time, <laughs> but it does. It does come. So here's something I'm kind of proud of I'd like to share with you. Here's a couple of folks that uh, I think you've admired over your career that I've been lucky enough to interview that all have something in common with you. Speedy West. Oh, yeah. Alvino Ray. Oh, yeah. Bud Isaac. Oh, yeah. Buddy Emmons. Oh, yeah. Great Jimmy players. Carver. Um, am I missing? I mean, I've been so blessed to hang out with these huge guys. And there's some of us, some of them we've missed that are no longer with us, like Sneaky Pete. He's been gone for years. I knew him in California and John Huey, who passed away, who, of course, played with Vince for years. But what he's even maybe more famous for is those amazing Conway Twitty records he played on, like Hello, Darling, and all those. And uh, we lost him a few years back, which was tragic. Those guys are all you, – you look up to those guys. You know, you grow up uh, – another one I mentioned is, like, Rusty Young, you know, and Poco. And, and then, of course, uh, John David Call with Pure Prairie League, fantastic players of the, of the hippie era. And then, uh, but then in the straight country thing, you know, guys like Lloyd Green, who are just phenomenal. Pete Drake, Pete Drake was just an amazing, Pete Drake might have been one of the ultimate chameleons because he'd play on Elvis Presley's records and he'd turn around and play on Johnny Rodriguez or George Jones and and a, a true innovator in his own way. And he was, of course, he had the talking steel guitar, which people know him for where he'd have the voice box and his talking steel guitar is that's how Frampton got recognized. He loaned it to Frampton. And that, that's where the do you feel like we do thing came from. So, uh, but I was never a big fan of his talking steel guitar. I thought it was just a gimmick, you know, and it was cool, but I liked his beautiful playing, his, his vibrato and his, and he was a parts guy. He was a real parts guy. He was never the flashy technical guy who could play a lot of 16th note stuff, but, um, but he was definitely the guy who came up with interesting signature hooks. And that's why he got so much work. You know, something to be said for that. Yeah, no doubt. But I've I've done a lot of stuff outside of the box. In fact, I performed uh, with the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. In this case, it was actually the Chamber Orchestra at the Ryman a few years ago. I was on the bill with uh, uh, Jose Feliciano, was the actual headliner, and John Jorgensen did his gypsy jazz thing as well. And uh, it was uh, written by Michael Levine, who's a prominent composer in California, and it was called the uh, Concerto for Pedal Steel Guitar. And uh, I do read music, so not every steel player reads music, like real, what I call real music, as opposed to numbers charts. So they were looking for a guy who could actually read music, play the steel, and would be willing to take on this this feat of a three-movement three concerto with an orchestra for pedal steel. So we performed that in 2005, and uh, probably going to do it again, looking at some uh, some more uh, 
dates maybe in 2017 to perform with other symphonies. So that's an exciting thing. And it's, it's uh, the most difficult thing I ever tried to take on. And I did manage to pull it off, but it was a lot of work. But for me, it was exciting to take, as I was saying about Pete Drake, which is why I got mentioned this, how he would take the steel other places. That's what I wanted to do with the steel. When I was given this opportunity, I said, this is perfect because uh, that's what I want to do is further the steel as a multi-genre instrument, not just known as country or just known as Hawaiian or blues or rock or anything. It's, it can go anywhere you want it. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize that those, those amazing slide parts that were on a song called Lunatic Fringe by Red Rider, that's pedal steel. And he used to use a, an old Fender double neck through two high watt stack units, just massive wall of sound. That was pedal steel. And people listen to it all the time. Probably have no idea that's pedal steel playing that uh, on Lunatic Fringe. So there's a good good example of where it can step outside of the genre, outside of the box. All right, you guys, Gary Morris is uh, ending our podcast today. What a fantastic day this has been. You guys, thank you all so much for all your help and your contributions. And thanks to all our listeners for inspiring this podcast, because it really is bringing out the true meaning of these interviews that we've done individually over the years is that collectively, we have an amazing history that we're so very proud of and so honored and humbled to recognize all of these leaders and pioneers and fantastic people that we've been able to interview over the years. You know, I, I still can't get over the fact that we have the lineage of the, the steel guitar in this collection. I mean, Alvino Ray, Bud Isaacs, Speedy West, Buddy Emmons, Buddy Merrill. I mean, th this to me is like the roots of the tree, you know, the foundation of this instrument. And so, so privileged we are to have this opportunity. So thank you all. I really appreciate it. And uh, what Mike kind of said, I think in the, towards the beginning was, I mean, this is almost the true definition of what an oral history is, where you're really getting that, that lineage and being able to tell that story sort of from the beginning up until a more current time and really getting that picture. Um, as I was listening to all of these interviews, I had been toying in my head with this thought and I was trying to figure out the best way to say it. And I'm probably not gonna say it the best way I could, but I'm gonna give it a shot here. Um, I've always loved the steel guitar and the sound of that in, in music, especially with like uh, the Hawaiian and country music. Like it just, it kind of, Usually it's in the beginning, you'll hear a little bit of it, a little lick of it, and it really transports you into that, that feel and that vibe of whatever that song is and that music. I have to say though, I never knew how complex the steel guitar was <laughs> until hearing them all talk about it. And how, I mean, just all the levers and the tunings and all this stuff. And then and then just also the music theory knowledge that they had to have um, in order to play that and to know what they wanted to do it's it's really amazing how you know it sounds so calming and like kind of just transports you into this like world as you listen to the song but it's a very complex machine to kind of take over what Gary said uh to make that happen so that was one of my big things just listening to all these people and hearing them talk about that well we that get to really honor these people by having that deeper appreciation I think yes. that that's really a privilege for mm -hmm. sure definitely 
Yes. So thank you again, everyone that listened to this episode of the podcast. Um, be sure to tune in in two weeks for the follow-up to this episode. We're going to be talking all about innovators of the steel guitar um, and the folks that will be in that episode we just listed a few minutes ago. So if this episode interests you, you definitely don't want to miss our next one. Mm. So thank you again for listening and watching if you're on the NAM website. And we will see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.